the most curious start to a message that I've had to date. I was just looking at my notes here, and up popped a little thing saying, I won't name any names, but so-and-so who's in your contact list would like a Wi-Fi password for the Riverhill Guest Network. Do you want to share it with them? So anyone else who's in my contact list, if you want the, if you want the Wi-Fi password, I have you covered. Right? So if I look this way mid-message, and uh, you're not quite sure what's going on, somebody needs Wi-Fi, and I'll be happy to oblige. Um, I have a question for you. Have you ever played a game of Have You Ever? We're going to play that this morning, if you haven't before. Just simply. My question to you, my Have You Ever question is, have you ever launched into something and then wondered how or maybe if this thing was going to work out? <laughs> Good. Excellent. It's, it's, it's a bit of an unfair question because I'm pretty sure Mike's got two hands in the air. Okay, good. We can all relate to this. I have an example of this for you from, uh, well, quite a while back, actually almost 20 years ago. Um, and it's an example that is connected to this picture. And when I put this picture in my slides, Microsoft very helpfully told me that this is a close-up of a tree. <laughs> to which I thought, Microsoft, I'm afraid you've missed the point. <clears throat> the point is that there's actually a leopard in this tree. If I zoom in a little bit on the middle here, there it is, right in the middle. Now, I took this picture almost 20 years ago, but this was a case of have you ever. Marie and I had the wonderful opportunity of being back in Tanzania where we had spent some time, and it was actually over our first wedding anniversary. We got to go off, borrow a car, and go off into the national parks on a safari, which is a lot of fun. And we'd heard about uh, a leopard being in this area, and we drove around and we found it. And we were stopped on the road with this tree, sort of down a bank, quite a steep bank off the side of the road, and this tree with the leopard in it. And it looked amazing, but it was a little way off. And this was, you know, we didn't have a big expensive camera at the time. This is on uh, analog film still, which you can, like, why it's so fuzzy, right? It doesn't get any better than that. Um, and so I, in my wisdom, did the only sensible thing in order to get a good picture of the leopard. I opened the door and I got out of the car. It's asleep. What's, you know, what could go wrong? It's the middle of the day, leopard sleep in the day, and you can see how high up in the tree it is, right? It's at least 20 feet off the ground. And I'm not stupid. I'm going to leave lots more space between me and the leopard than I do between me and the car. So if anything does happen, I will have plenty of time to get back to the car safe and sound, right? So I get out of the car. I start walking down the bank. I get in close-ish, you know, full zoom on the little camera we had. And, uh, <clears throat> and I took this picture, this first one, and I wasn't quite happy that it was really good enough. So I decided just to step in a little bit closer and get a second picture. And in true Roadrunner cartoon style, I'm stood there with the camera just getting set, and I take a step with my foot, and a twig snaps under my foot. And the leopard now looks like this. You might not be able to see from where you are, but there are two eyes now looking at me <laughs> that were not looking at me half a second earlier. And the reason you can see them, I uh, see my pointer works right here, there we go, two leopard eyes, right? The reason they stand out like that is because as well as having woken up said leopard with snapping a twig, um, the camera put a little bit of fill-in flash under the tree because it was dark under the tree, and this got the leopard's attention. <laughs> 
And the leopard, instead of climbing out of the tree, or even rushing out of the tree, dropped off the branch and landed on the ground. <laughs> and I thought, oh dear. <laughs> I wonder how, or even if, this is going to work out from here. So I did the only sensible thing. I turned and I ran back to the car as fast as I absolutely could. I threw myself into the front seat and slammed the door behind me. Um, for my uh, stupidity, I got a big knock on the head as I flung myself into the car and had a big egg come up on the side of my head. Um, in the meantime, the leopard had run the other way. And Marie was sat in the car watching all of this. I don't know if she was laughing or terrified or wanting to do both. I'm not sure. But that's my have you ever game. <laughs> Launched into something and then halfway through realized I'm not sure how this is going to work out. Well, that was a very foolish have you ever. <clears throat> but Abraham, or Abram, um, as he's known at the time, gets into a, situ a situation of have you ever? Now, his is certainly not through foolishness, because this is how it begins. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. God gives him an instruction, a thing that he wants him to do. And then he makes this extraordinary promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Consider just for a moment before we move on with this, the comparison to what Eric was talking about last week in the Tower of Babel and the people saying, we are going to stay here and we are going to make a name for ourselves. And God's saying, uh-uh, nope, you're going to be scattered. And then he says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. Notice he doesn't give Abram like the, the, the power here. He doesn't say to him, I will bless the people that you bless and I will curse the people that you curse. He's talking about, I will protect you, I'll be your shield and defender. And he's saying, if somebody blesses you, I will bless them in return. And if somebody curses you, I will curse them. He's not giving Abram that, that choice. God is still sovereign in this. But he's making an incredible promise to Abram. And Abram has a great response. He leaves the land of Haran, where he is, and he goes on his way. And he moves a little bit from place to place. And at a couple of points, he builds an altar to the Lord, to recognize and honor the Lord. He seeks the Lord, who then directs him further, and he builds another altar. So things are going pretty well. But then things change slightly. There is a famine in the land. And Scripture certainly doesn't tell us that God directed Abram to do this, but he decides to go to Egypt, where there will be food. So he leaves where he is, and he travels south to Egypt. And as he gets there, he starts to think about this problem. He has a wife, Sarai, who is very beautiful. And as he's approaching Egypt, he realizes, hmm, this could be a problem. And he says to his wife, when the Egyptians see you, 
They will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Hang on a minute. Let's just back up here slightly. Not that long ago, God said this to Abram. And now, as they travel to Egypt to find food, Abram is worried for his own life. He's worried that the Egyptians will kill him. God, the almighty God of the universe, has just told him that he's going to be made into a great nation and a blessing to all peoples. But he's worried that he's going to die. And he's willing to just, for want of a better term, offload his wife in order to spare his, you know, save his own skin. Bear in mind, this is not a temporary arrangement, right? If you read um, in this chapter, so we're in chapter 12 of Genesis, it goes on to say, uh, so Pharaoh's, uh, no, hang on, sorry, I'm in the wrong spot. Uh, where are we? When Pharaoh's officials saw her, Sarai, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. And Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. Now, let's just freeze in time here. We know how this story continues. But just imagine you're in this situation, you're Abram, and you hope that in a year or two's time there'll be food again in the land of Canaan where you've been called to go. Do you think Abram's, Abram's thinking, I'll just roll up to the palace and say, oh, by the way, um, that lady I left with you, she's actually my wife and I'm going now. Can I have her back, please, and take her with me? This, this is not a temporary thing. He's effectively just, like I said, offloaded his wife to save his skin after God's just told him, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. So Abraham trusted God and set out on his way, but he didn't fully trust God. Didn't fully trust what God had told him. And so my question to you this morning is, how much do we do this in our own lives? How much do we say, yeah, God, I trust you. I believe in you, and then when things don't start to go how we expect, we have doubts, we wonder if we heard right the first time, we wonder if this is all really real, we wonder if we should do things a different way, maybe we can figure out a better way. About 10 years ago, almost exactly 10 years ago, um, Marie and I left um, Maryland, went back to England for a while. And the plan at that point, as many of you know, was that I was going to be coming back, or we were going to be coming back, and I was going to be um, joining staff at Oak Ridge and working full-time here, and I did um, that for a while. But there was this period of time when we were in England, um, about 10 months or so, um, where we were working through all of the nuts and bolts of that situation. We had a house to sell, we had visas to arrange, we had, you know, we had to sort of keep life going at the same time. I was in a great position work-wise in, my, in my, uh, my government job. I'd basically told them, by the way, I am going to be leaving, um, but um, you know, I'm gonna, I, I want to finish strong, I'm going to just keep working hard, and I'll let you know when the end comes and I need to go. And they were fine with that, which is an amazing position to be able to be in. Um, and, but all through this, there were lots of logistics going on, and things happened that made us think, well, hang on, how is this going to work out now? For example, the first visa application that we made failed and got sent back to us, denied. That's a problem when you're looking to move into a country and work there. 
And we'd left, you know, we had, we had uh, we'd sort of done an Abram, if you will, and we had left a bunch of our possessions here, trusting that God was calling us to this, and we would just come back and get them when we came back. And things started to go a little bit dicey in the middle. And there were other things. There's a long story. I'm not going to go into the long story today, but I will, uh, you know, at other times if anyone is curious, because it's a great story of what God achieved. But in the midst of this, Marie and I had all these sort of plans going on, and we had these charts, and we had, like, we were trying to line up, okay, well, these are all the things that we need to get done if this is going to work, right? We need to figure out how this is going to work, and we need to get all this stuff lined up, and we had these calendar charts where we had different colors that were like, okay, if this thing happens by this date, then we'll be able to do that thing over the next two weeks, and then we can do this, and then we'll be able to move on to those other phases, and soon we'll be on, our, on a plane on the way back. But wait, if this happens four days later, then we're going to go to the green line where this pushes out the, you know, it was a very, um, we, were trying to, we were trying to plan God's work, essentially. And every time we got anything like a sort of a, a mature plan together, if you will, right, where everything looked like, okay, if we start now, everything lines up. Then something happened that changed everything and we just had to throw that paper away and it was gone. And I'm pretty sure that was God telling us, no, wait, be patient. I've got this, just listen and follow. Stop trying to work it out for yourselves. As a side note, this is not actually a lie. As it happens, Sarai is, uh, was Abram's uh, half-sister, I guess. Right? Um, we find out later in Genesis that um, they had the same father. And if that sounds weird to you in our modern society, just bear in mind that this was a much less populated earth than we're talking about now. So family units were, I guess, you know, a lot more uh, close in the way marriage worked and all the rest of it. But anyway, we're going to fast forward a bit. A lot of things happen from this point, right? Um, uh, God brings uh, disease on Pharaoh's household and closes the wombs of all the women in Pharaoh's household. And eventually, I guess, Pharaoh starts asking questions and he calls in Abram and he says, what is this that you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Take her and go. So they leave with all of their wealth that they've been um, given. And then we have Abram separates from Lot, his nephew, because there are too many of them and too many herds and things um, to be supported by the land, so they separate. Uh, And then Abram ends up rescuing Lot because he goes to settle in the plain of Jordan and Sodom and Gomorrah, and bad things happen there, and those are destroyed um, as well. So sorry, that's two two separate bits of story I'm rolling into one because Lot gets captured at some point as well, taken away. Abram has to go rescue him. and um, at that point, when, when Abram rescues Lot, he refuses uh, riches that are offered by the king of Sodom because he says, I don't want to be able to say that you, king of Sodom, made me rich. God's made me who I am. Pretty neat stuff. And after this point, God reiterates some of the same things that he's already said. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. This is the beginning of chapter 15 of Genesis. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. But God has a response to this. The word of the Lord came to him, to Abram, 
saying, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, here's a picture of the stars at night. I'm cheating a little bit here because this is using, you know, telescopes and photography, but I did a little research, and it turns out that with the naked eye, you can see somewhere between five and 10,000 stars at night without, you know, on a clear night without light pollution. Probably not a lot of light pollution in Abram's day. And of course, that's globally, right? So from any point on the earth, you could probably see about half of that. So from where he's standing, Abram can see maybe between three and 5,000 stars, something like that. That's a lot of stars. Now, God obviously isn't saying to him, that number that you count up there, that's actually the number that your offspring will be. He's saying, if you could even count that, your offspring will be uncountable. And we know, obviously, from our perspective now, that it is far greater than 5,000. That Abraham was indeed the father of um, Ishmael and Isaac, um, of what became the nation of Israel, a forefather of Jesus himself through whom all nations are blessed. Oops. The good news is, at this point, that we read these wonderful words, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. What great words to read, that Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And what's even better is that this does not just apply to Abram. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 4 for a moment. If you, this is not on the slides, I'm afraid. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along or just listen. Romans chapter 4, and I'm going to start at verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification. We've just celebrated communion here this morning together. We have just lifted up the name of the Lord Jesus and professed our faith in Him. And Paul says to us that by doing this, by putting our faith in God who raised Jesus from the dead, that it can be counted to us also as righteousness, that we can be seen by God as being righteous, not because of what we've done, but by recognizing, by responding to what He has done for us. 
And it's not just that God makes this promise. He goes on to make a covenant. Let's get back to where I was. So in addition to promising Abram that he will be the father of many nations, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, that's where he grew up, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And the Lord instructs him uh, to bring the elements of um, a, a covenant to bring certain animals And they are slaughtered, and they are cut in two and placed in two halves. And this is how covenants were sometimes um, conducted in this time. They're self-maledictory covenants. That means that the people involved in making the covenant together would prepare a way like this, and then they would walk between the halves together. And this was a way of saying, may it be done to me like this if I do not fulfill my covenant to you. I am willing to be cut down and slaughtered if I break my covenant with you. That was the gravity of what was going on here. And what's really interesting about what happens next is that God doesn't ask Abram to walk with him between the animals. God appears and he's represented by um, a, a brazier and a blazing torch, and he passes between the pieces. It's a unilateral promise on God's part saying, this will happen. And so he makes this amazing promise to Abram, and Abram is credited as righteous. The other good news is, we know that the Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. There are many promises. In fact, there are, in the Old Testament, there are at least seven occasions where a covenant is made or spoken of. The word covenant is used in some way, or the actions of a covenant are included. Here's a list of them. There are um, many more occasions in Scripture where promises are made by God. In fact, this last one in Jeremiah, here Jeremiah 31, that's actually speaking of the new covenant in Jesus. It's prophetic, and it's talking about the future coming of Jesus. As an interesting aside, I had a conversation with one of my kids uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And um, it was a good teachable moment because I won't name the child in question, but what they said to me was, well, Dad, it's not lying if you don't make a promise. And I thought, hmm, not really. (laughs) If you say something, you give your word. Did we go back for a second here to what um, God said to Abram, yeah, any of these. Here we go. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. God's not using the word promise here, but he's making a statement. And we know that we can trust the word of God. The question is, how much are we willing to trust it? Are we willing to trust God when he calls us to something, as long as we think it's a good idea and it's going well? Are we willing to trust God when things don't look like they're going to work out how we expected? Are we willing to keep our faith in Him and say, God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I trust you, 
and I will do what you have asked me to do, even though I have no idea maybe why, or no idea what the response might be. Do I trust you enough when you put somebody in my path that you want me to share with, that if I speak to them, it's all in your hands? That I don't, I'm not the one who needs to convince them, like I might, you know, not that I might say um, something wrong and turn them away from you, or maybe they'll just reject what I have to say and I'll lose a friendship. Maybe it's, you know, somebody at work and maybe I'll get in trouble, uh, you know, with my job for speaking out. If God calls me to speak, I need to speak and leave the results up to Him. And that is not always simple, is it? We can probably all think of times where we'd like, okay, God, I know this is what you want, but I really wish it wasn't this. I really wish I could just walk away or do something else. But the good news is that God is faithful and He will do what He says. Now, just compare for a second, seeing as we are taking a whole trip through Genesis here, the response, sorry, get back to where I was. Here we go. The response of Abram, who believed the Lord and was credited as righteous, compared to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I was reading this verse again recently, Genesis 3.8, and this thought struck me that I don't think I had before. Genesis 3.8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We all know this part of the story, but the thought occurred to me, hang on a second. The snake appears to Eve and deceives her, and she sins, and she talks to Adam, and he sins, and sin has entered the world. But all they had to do was wait until the cool of the day when the Lord would come walking in the garden and ask him, uh, hey God, I know what you told us, but this snake over here is telling us something different. Could you please kind of clear this up for us? Like they had this level of trust in God that just sort of evaporated, right? And it sounds crazy when you put it like that, but again, how much do we do the same thing? How much do we say, okay, God, I get what you're telling me to do. Oh, but somebody else told me this other thing, so I should probably go and do that, or I should probably not do the thing that you told me to do. Challenge yourself with that. Ask yourself, are there examples of this going on in my life? Do I get discouraged or dissuaded from what I think God is calling me to do because I just hear some other voice that pulls me off to the side and I follow that voice instead? Take some time to think about that. And consider, is that what's happening in my life? One factor in all of this, which, and I'm going to put this slide up with a big caveat, is about timing. See, Adam and Eve weren't willing to wait and ask God the truth. Ask him, hey, God, could you just affirm for us what's true here? And the reason I have a big slide over this caveat is because this is not a biblical principle, right? Timing is everything does not come out of the Bible. It's a human principle. It's, there are songs about it, right? There's a country song about it I discovered yesterday. I'm not going to try and sing it for you. It's not really my thing. But timing is very important. And God's timing is the most important of all. We see that problem with Adam and Eve, and we see it also with Abram and Sarai. 
who become Abraham and Sarah. Because what happens after this point in the story? God has told Abram, I will make you a father of many nations. All peoples will be blessed through you. And some time continues to go by, and nothing seems to be happening. And some period of time later, something like 15 years later, maybe, we get to this point where Sarai says to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And again, we all know this part of the story, and it's indeed what happens. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, um, Sarai, took, uh, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And things go very quickly downhill from there, don't they? When, as soon as she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. I mean, you can just imagine what that must be like, right? Sarai, by this point, I think, if I counted right, is in her mid-80s. She's been married to Abram a long time and hasn't been able to conceive a child. She decides to give Hagar to her husband as a wife, perhaps, you know, so they can perhaps build a family through her, and boom, just like that, she's pregnant. You can imagine what those, you know, Thanksgiving dinner must have been a really interesting time in their family. And there's a lot of tension, and they run away, and they're sent away. You know, I'm not, we're not, that's not the part of the story that we're focused on today. But the part that we are focused on was the fact that they weren't willing to wait on God's timing. God had given a promise. He had given it again. And he had made a covenant with Abram. And yet still, they get to the point where they decide, okay, we better take matters. In, you know, this is not happening. We better take matters into our own hands and try and make this work. To quote a different literary source, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is he early. He always arrives precisely when he means to. Now, this obviously not in the Bible, also not biblical truth, but I thought about this quote because I thought how much it applies in the real world to God. God is never late nor is he early. He always acts precisely when he means to. It may not be when we're expecting him, but he always acts precisely when he means to. And so to put our trust in God is not only to say, okay, God, yeah, I get the thing you're telling me to do. I'll go along with that. But it's to trust him every step of the way. Proverbs 3 says this, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. It doesn't say trust in the Lord and then figure out some things for yourself as you go along. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not. Do not lean on your own understanding. Do not try and figure out for yourself what God has told you he will do. Listen and wait and respond. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Abram and Sarai's paths were not straight because they did not do this. They did not submit to him. They took matters into their own hands and tried to make things work for themselves. And the good news is that this kind of thing and the credit of righteousness that we see 
that God gives to Abram is not reserved for just special people recorded in the Bible. Paul tells us in those verses I read from Romans that they are, those promises are for us too, that God will credit to us as righteousness our faith in Jesus Christ. God will act in our lives if we allow Him to, and sometimes when we try and resist as well, right? We can invite Him or resist Him, and this is something that is available for everybody. I want to close with just a little different bit of personal testimony here, which is actually very, um, is very closely related to this in a way. Marie and I have four lovely children, human children, lovely children. When, um, when Marie was a, a teenager, she had been told by a doctor that she may not be able to have children. And um, we didn't really know. Uh, we were married very young. We were, we were married as 19-year-olds. Um, and at that point, we didn't really know what that meant still. Um, but we did know that we really wanted to be parents. And so a few months into our marriage, we, um, we abandoned any, um, any form of family planning. And we simply prayed to God and we said, God, you know, we believe that you have put us together and you know that we would love to be parents. If it is your will for us to be parents, and we pray that you would give us children when it is the right time. And it was seven years into our marriage before we had Sophie. And seven years is not a long time for, it's not as long as Abram and Sarai were waiting, but it was a good while. And there were difficulties along the way. We had an early miscarriage right before Sophie was born, and at that point we wondered, is this ever going to happen? But what I can stand here and testify to is that we offered this up to God, and we said, God, you know our heart's desire. We submit to your will. You know we would love to be parents. If it is your will, please give us children. And he did, and he did it with perfect timing. We were, I don't know, I, 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 I want to do a... a quick survey of the room almost and work out who was here back in 2006 when we arrived. But when we arrived in 2006 and we walked into this room one September, I think, morning or late August maybe, Marie was pregnant with Sophie at the time, about 25, 26 weeks, something like that. And it was wonderful timing. We had, you know, we were moving countries, so she had left, she had finished her teaching job um, and quit at the end of the school year. Um, we were in a position where, with, with my overseas posting, we were able to live um, on a single income, despite being at a fairly junior point uh, career-wise still. And so we had this wonderful opportunity to grow and nurture our family here. Now, I can't promise that the same thing happens for everyone. I know a lot of families, a lot of couples struggle with having children. And I can't tell you that well, if you just pray, then within seven years you'll have children, because I don't know the mind of God. Each, each person's story is their own. But what I can testify to is that this is what has happened in our lives. We offered this to God. 
We asked him to take control. We submitted to him. We made no attempt to do things for him. And he was faithful, as he always is. He is faithful, and his timing is perfect. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are 100% faithful, that what you say to us will come to pass, that what you promise to us will happen. We thank you that we can put our trust in you, and we ask that you would help us, like the father of the demon-possessed boy who says, Lord, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. We pray that you would help us to put our trust in you and to turn to you when we doubt to turn to you when we struggle, to lean not on our own understanding, but to wait eagerly on you to speak and to act in our lives. We pray that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, and that you would help us to walk side by side with you every step of the way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.